This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. Welcome back to Mobile Suit Breakdown. This is episode 1.21, The Long Shadow. And we are your hosts, as always. I am Tom, longtime Gundam fan and 100% plastic. And I'm Nina, anime fan and ready for some new mobile suits already. <laughs> A big thank you to all of our patrons, and especially to our new patrons this week, Ron and Susan G, Jordan M, Nolan O, Robert F, John, Angus S, Lights. And Jojo R. Thank you all so much. Thank you for joining us on our Gundam journey and making the podcast possible. We'd also like to thank Mark R. and Stephen B. for emailing us this past week with some interesting Gundam stuff and some words of encouragement that we really appreciated. And thank you to at Maho Suit Guy on Twitter for letting us know how much you're enjoying the podcast. And thank you to at DG Gunpla on Twitter for letting us know that you've been enjoying the podcast so much that it's made you nostalgic for First Gundam and you've gone back to start watching it again. That's awesome. A quick reminder, we are currently running a giveaway contest in order to promote the podcast. We have some great prizes lined up, including copies of First Gundam, Gunpla, some really cool Gundam art prints, and we are pleased to announce this week that we will also be giving away some Braubo and the Orphans band t-shirts. These are eventually going to be available to our patrons, but the first people to get them will be the winners of this contest. And also Nina and I, because they are super cool and we cannot wait to wear them. Super sweet. Nina's going to cut the arms off of hers and then you might get some cool gym selfies. If you would like to be entered into the contest, all you need to do is any of the following before February 1st. Like Mobile Suit Breakdown's page on Facebook, follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter, follow at Gundam Podcast on Instagram, support us on Patreon, or write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and then email a copy of that review to us so that we know that you wrote it. If you do more than one of those things, and we would love it if you did more than one of those things, then you'll be entered into the contest more than once. Last week, we covered Rambaral's attack on the white base with his commandos and Haman's subsequent revenge attack with the remains of the Rambaral team after their defeat. These were quite powerful, quite moving episodes that saw Rambaral, Haman, and ultimately Ryu Jose all killed in combat. And the white base was left grieving their fallen comrade. This week, we are going to be covering two episodes again. These two are perhaps a little bit less coherently connected than the previous two, but they do still share many story elements, many thematic elements, and a weird yo-yoing tone that we think is the result of tension between the necessities of making a toy commercial and the gritty, grim war story that the creative team actually wanted to tell. And now, the recap. While the white base waits for word of Odessa Day, they scour the area, destroying every Xeon mine they find. But the constant stress, fear, and grief have taken their toll on Bright, and he collapses from exhaustion. While he lies feverish and unconscious in the medbay, 
Mirai steps up, but quickly finds herself paralyzed by the pressure of being responsible for the White Base and all its crew. McVeigh, furious that the White Base has been successful in spite of heightened security, plans a trap. A group of commandos, with little more than jetpacks and plastic explosives, will plant bombs all over the White Base, targeting its Minovsky particle emitter and ECM transmitter, but leaving its radar functional. After the bombs go off, the crew struggle to defend the crippled White Base. Many of them wish Ryu were still with them, even Bright, talking in his sleep. Amuro and Hayato, first in the core fighters and then in the Gundam and gun tank, are soon overwhelmed by the Xeon force of Dops and Goofs, and Mirai orders the operators to use the ship's radar to find them all a clear path to retreat. This path leads them directly into the range of Xeon's Mega Particle Cannon, which emerges from below the sand and blasts a hole straight through the body of the White Base. Amuro is able to destroy the Mega Particle Cannon with a direct hit from his beam rifle, but the White Base still makes an emergency landing. Dops are closing in, and Mirai is paralyzed with terror, convinced this is it for them. But one of the operators recommends setting off smoke bombs in the launch tubes to make the White Base seem even more damaged than it is. The deception is successful, and the Dops leave. Mirai recovers herself enough to take Sela up on her suggestion that they call General Revel for help before leaving the bridge to check on Bright. In the next episode, the White Base crew attempt repairs, but don't have any of the parts or supplies that they need. Bright asks Mirai to officially take on the post of acting commander. Mirai is afraid and tries to say no, that she isn't ready to take on such a responsibility, but Bright reminds her that no one is ever really ready. She reluctantly agrees and Bright goes back to recuperating. On the Federation ship, Big Trey, General Revel decides to send Lieutenant Matilda with regular supplies for the White Base and new experimental weapons for the Gundam. She and her crew will assist the White Base with repairs, then go directly with the White Base crew to participate in the Odessa Day operation. But Xeon spies have infiltrated Big Trey's crew, and McVeigh's forces intercept Matilda's Medea supply squadron. The White Base receives Matilda's SOS, and Mirai orders Amuro, Kai, and Hayato to go defend the supplies. Suddenly unsure of herself and concerned that she might be leaving the White Base undefended, Mirai moves to order them back, but Sailor refuses to change the order and tells them to launch. Amuro fights off the Dops in a core fighter, but is struggling to fight the Goofs. He performs a mid-air transfer, combining the core fighter with the Gundam parts to form the Gundam, and Kai arrives in the gun cannon to back him up. The Medea squadron all land, some too damaged to fly, the others trying to provide defense. Lieutenant Matilda orders the upgrade Gundam parts unloaded. Even though Amuro has never trained with them, they may help him fight off the last of the goofs. Back at the White Base, Mirai wonders what to do, and remains nervous and uncertain. One of the operators tells her that the most important thing in command is to seem calm and confident. When Bright calls for a status report, she tells him the Medea squadron with supplies will be with them shortly. She is able to put him at ease, and while they wait, she sets the rest of the crew to continuing whatever repairs are possible. The Gundam is badly damaged, and its movement severely impaired when it is caught with a goof heat rod. Help arrives for the struggling Gundam in the form of Hayato, piloting the new G-Fighter, a fighter that the Gundam can stand on for aerial combat in Earth gravity. They defeat the last of the Xeon force, and escort the Medea squadron to the White Base. There, Mirai feels ashamed that she struggled so much with command, but Sela comforts her, saying that she ultimately rose to the occasion. Lieutenant Matilda thanks Amuro, Hayato, and Kai for rescuing her, and takes them to look over the rest of the new Gundam parts.
We are covering two episodes this week again. We are covering The Trap of McVeigh and Matilda's Rescue. Interesting. Uh, one of the English translations of that first title that I saw was Toward McVeigh's Trap. <gasps> so apparently there's two different translations used for that. Yeah. Toward is probably the more literal one. Mm. And so it's probably the one that got used in fan subs and in the Southeast Asian English releases. Got it. That's usually how those work out. We have a couple of scenes that really feel like comic relief. Definitely. Um, including a, a butt-scooting Zeon soldier <laughs> and a paper plane-throwing Kai. Scenes that don't fit the tone of these couple of episodes, because these are the episodes in the shadow of Ryu's death, episodes where Captain Bright, or Commanding <laughs> Officer Bright, Acting Captain Bright, becomes incapacitated by his mental reaction, by his psychological reaction to Ryu's death, and by exhaustion, presumably because he's not sleeping. My assumption is simply that we know they've had food issues <laughs> basically the whole time and that those got somewhat better when they no longer had a bunch of refugees on board, but I assume it's still an issue. He barely rests. Every time he starts to rest, someone comes <laughs> to him with some urgent problem. Uh, and then the grief of losing Ryu, he's exhausted. Mm -hmm. Although he's very quick to blame himself. He's very quick to feel ashamed and to worry that it's in fact that he's become afraid mm -hmm. and that his fear is rendering him incapable. Yeah, these uh, these two episodes to me feel connected because th of their focus on how tenuous things are board the white base mm -hmm. that we are only a, a step away from losing it all yeah it does feel as though everything is coming apart now bright collapses and we end the first episode with the white base shot down there were so many points during both of these episodes that i thought the white base was a goner that i was like okay that's it they're not going to be able to ever fly it again it's going to explode it's done coming back to bright a little bit so he gets sick very suddenly and there's no real provision for who's going to be in charge. And it's Mirai because Mirai is at this point his second in command. Mm -hmm. We get the impression that had Ryu been around, it might have been Ryu instead. Or at the very least, Ryu would have been right there with Mirai helping her. Mm -hmm. And in the second episode, the relief, the palpable relief on Bright's face when he sort of uh, pressures Mirai into accepting that she is acting commander. Mm -hmm. And her reaction to these situations, her tentativeness, which feels uncharacteristic right we've never seen her be so indecisive makes us wonder if he made the right call or if he you know eyes clouded by his feelings for her <laughs> and clouded by the fact that he trusts her more than he trusts anyone else uh has made a bad call in putting her in charge she makes mistakes she's uncertain she has at one point a kind of collapse and is unable to do anything and is just sitting there repeating over and over again bright ryu help me but then she pulls it together not alone she has some help from sela and she has some help more more importantly, from the operators. The operators, man. They're the hardest working members of the crew. <laughs> they're not collapsing from exhaustion. Yet. But they, then again, they're not in charge. And I think one of the things that this episode has to say is that the weight on the person who is in charge is intense. Mirai was never indecisive because it was never really her decision to make. Ultimately, authority for making those decisions fell on Bright. Mirai was just executing them as best she could. But now she has to decide. She has to make those choices. She has to project confidence. She has to do all the commander things. And and by the end of the second episode, she has managed to pull it together and she is doing some approximation of that. 
that. Yeah, I found her interactions with Sela through these two episodes very interesting. Oh, it's her interactions with Sela are absolutely <laughs> the most important character thing happening in these episodes. Well, and especially once we get to the end. But early on, Sela feels very combative. The attitude is very much like, you're making the wrong calls. Like, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And not in a very gentle way. No. <laughs> not as a like, what about? It's more like, no, we're going <laughs> to do this. Yeah. You can punish me if you want. And well, and then at the points where Mirai starts to ask for help, she gets this death glare. Like, yeah. why are you the person in charge asking me to tell you what to do? Yeah, Mirai asks Sela at one point, you know, what should a commander do in this moment? And this is a reasonable question to ask, especially since Sela has, up until this point, done nothing but criticize Mirai's decisions. And, and tell, tell her, her what to do. Exactly. Tell her, oh, you should have done X instead. Or, oh, that was wrong. Or just issue orders on her own and say, punish me for it if you think I'm wrong. And so when Mirai actually asks Sela, what should I do right now? Sela just turns around in her chair and glares God, at her. God, that look. <laughs> I've given that look. It's not nice. <laughs> Nina, what should a podcaster do right now? And yet we can see in the moment when Mirai has realized that her primary job is actually to keep everybody calm. <laughs> and steady mm -hmm. uh bright calls her and wants to know what's going on and she's like oh they'll be here in five minutes and everything is fine and yeah. he's comforted and he feels like he can continue to rest which he absolutely needs and during that scene she doesn't say anything but you can see sayla in the background and she almost looks surprised a little like oh she is projecting the calm confidence that we have wanted from her all along and it's after that that she goes up and lays a hand on Mirai's hand and tells her that she's doing a good job and they have like a nice friends moment mm -hmm. which before that I had this kind of competing impressions and I don't know which one is the right one my first was that uh, for all Sayla's criticism she doesn't try to take command which she probably could if she really wanted to mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah uh, I think Mirai if somebody else had been like I think if Sayla had challenged her in a particular way and maybe more directly and even be like, you clearly don't know what you're doing. I know how to do this. Let me do it. Mm -hmm. Mirai might have said, okay, fine. Yeah, <laughs> that that is totally possible. Uh, and we've seen Sela challenge authority pretty frequently before, but it doesn't seem like she actually wants to be in command. Mm -hmm. She's very, she has high expectations <laughs> of the people in command, and she personally doesn't like being told what to do, but it, her behavior in the end makes it seem like she's not gunning for that spot, right? She's not trying to take Bright's job. <laughs> I think that's right. I feel like there are sort of two possibilities for Sela, keeping in mind how insubordinate she is, how unpleasant she is to Mirai through both of these episodes, but then also keeping in mind that Friends scene at the end and the relationship between the two of them in previous episodes. I'm not sure if this is a case of Sela being personally strong and hard and just seeing any deviation from that as weakness, or if this is Sela, like, this is what Sela scared looks like. Mm. Mirai is not projecting confidence. Sela is not being made to feel confident by her. Sela is afraid that they are all going to die. And instead of shutting down or panicking, exactly, Sela gets angry. Mm -hmm. She's a totally r good read, I think.
Tom pointed out while we were watching the episode, these are another two episodes where Amuro is not very important. <laughs> yeah, fundamentally, Amuro fights battles and he does so at a adequate level. It's not spectacular. It's also not terrible. And he is in love with Matilda and he those are the main character beats for him, none of which is new. What Nina pointed out, though, is that Amuro is the one person in the crew who says we need to move on. Everybody keeps saying, I wish Ryu was here. We need Ryu here. Bright when he's feverish in his Yeah. even gives orders to Ryu. Ryu, guard the port side with the gun cannon. But when Hayato says, you know, I wish Ryu were here, Amuro says, we've got to move on. Although I very much appreciated that after spending so much of the last episode on Ryu's death and how shocking it is and how moving the scene at the end of the previous episode is that the show doesn't just move on. The show doesn't go like, all right, and just sort of like dust its hands off. (laughs) All right, been there, done that, moving right along everyone is fine. Like, no, they're still, they're mourning. They, they've they experienced a really serious loss and they're all stuck on it. Everybody is responding to this in different ways because you have Bright, who is the most obvious case, and he he's a wreck. He's a puddle. He literally collapses on the bridge. And you have Amuro, who, he, you know, he says we need to move on, but he's also doing what Amuro does, which is he's taking out his feelings on Xeon mobile suits. Yup. We open the episode with a very rare for Gundam, like, in the middle of the battle start, and, you know, he's already fighting, spends a lot of time fighting, and it does really feel like he's working through that trauma by destroying a bunch of goofs. Yeah, I was surprised. We went from one goof, which is sort of the top of the line, extra special, so scary, deadly thing, and now there's a profusion of goofs. Yeah. They're everywhere. Did you notice that a bunch of the goofs have been armed with Zaku weaponry? No, I had not noticed. Because none of them have the heat sword that Rambaral was using. One of them we see has the axe that Zaku's used. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of them were equipped with the Zaku machine guns. And quite a few of them have the heat rod. I think that's built into the goof. So every one of them has that. But back to the way everyone is mourning Ryu. What I thought was really interesting are Kai and Hayato, especially Kai in the second episode. Kai doesn't appear in the first episode at all, except a brief shot of him on one of the anti-aircraft guns and him going. Right. When Hayato is like, wait, why can't Kai take the gun cannon out? (laughs) I assume Kai's voice actor was not available for that episode. (laughs) But in the second episode, Kai really reverts quite a bit to his old sort of attitude. And I don't know if that's because he's kind of the comic relief guy and either the creative team or the sponsors felt like the show had gotten too dark and it needed to lighten it up a little bit. And so some Kai snark was the solution to that. Or if it's that's how he's mourning, you know, he's taken kind of a step back in his emotional development, which is not an uncommon thing for people when they're mourning. I think we could also, in the same way that perhaps Sayla's reaction to being afraid is to be angry, uh, Kai's reaction to being afraid might be (laughs) to goof off and be snarky because we saw it more from him when he was new to the group when they had just left side seven when things were far more dangerous and new and then it dissipated somewhat and now with the white base essentially incapacitated Hayato gets on his case like people are going to accuse you of being weak or cowardly again but what what is there to do they don't have any materials they don't have any of what they need to fix the white base yeah yeah (laughs) Um, and his behavior later in the episode is very different. When he gets sent out in the gun cannon in the second episode, he's very gung-ho. Mm-hmm. Uh, he basically saves Amuro at one point and apologizes for how slow the gun cannon is. <laughs> at one point, he is protecting Matilda's transport ships in the face of a really intense barrage mm-hmm. of fire from other ships. And he holds his ground and he lets Amuro know, hey, we need your help. But he sticks around, even though he has to kind 
of bring attention to it later, he really preens at Matilda's acknowledgement that he was there to help her Mm -hmm. and that he was part of that crew. Like, I think in a lot of ways, he is more committed to the group than he's ever been. Mm -hmm. But it's true. We he's not one of the people we see mourning Ryu in the previous episode. Yeah, I'm not sure. Actually, there's no clear shot of him mourning in that initial pan. There's one person in like the side of the screen. We only see half of their body and it's <laughs> not very well drawn, but it could theoretically be Kai. Okay. It's either Kai or a character we've never encountered before. I, I just think that in an odd way, Kai might be the one who most is at peace with what Ryu did. Hmm. It's possible. <laughs> uh, I thought your observation that he's acting more like he did when he first joined the crew was very interesting because by the time Kai shows up in the show, they're already on the white base. We don't see his family. We don't see his loved ones the way we do for Hayato. But we can presume that like Hayato, Kai had a family on side seven and now he doesn't. So in those first few episodes, he was in that keenest period of mourning and now he is again. And so it's natural that his behavior now would be similar to what it was originally. I also mentioned that I thought Hayato's reaction to Ryu's death was very interesting because as I mentioned in our last episode, Hayato doesn't like Amuro. Hayato and Amuro have (laughs) never really gotten along. There's been no indication that they were really friends until these two episodes. Suddenly they're fighting so well together. Well, and they're working on maintenance together. They're showing up in a lot of scenes together. And yeah, they're they're fighting well together, even to the degree that at the end, when the power-up mecha appears, it's a fighter that Hayato pilots and Amuro rides on top of. Very similar to the way the gun tank is operated with one person driving and one person shooting. And I think Hayato had positioned himself in this kind of secondary role to Ryu. With Ryu gone, Hayato has started to position himself in a similar role with Amuro. He has this Ryu-shaped hole now in his life. And while Amuro is not the same shape as Ryu, Hayato is behaving with Amuro the way Hayato behaved with Ryu. We see a reappearance of Manuel, <laughs> the ABCs of commands. Which in Japanese, he actually says ABC. Yeah. I don't think they translate it that way. I think they... He's, and he just says it's like the basics yeah. of command. But he does say it's just like command no ABC, <laughs> which he gives to her and then is like, no, don't read that now. <laughs> Be decisive. This is the wrong time for reading. I thought that was great. We've talked a bunch of times about how Mirai's physical characterization is very distinct. They do a great job of showing her emotions through her body language. And in the scene when she's reading the manual, her shoulders are like visibly clenched. You can tell how anxious she is Mm -hmm. just from her posture there. I just realized that Bright's lines to her when she first refuses to be acting commander Mm -hmm. uh, and she says that she can't do it or that she's not ready. He's like, no one ever can. No one ever is. Uh, Echoes Amro's line from the previous episode where I forget what maneuver they're planning on doing, but it's something they've never done before. They've only Oh, they're read- launching they're launching the Gundam pieces from the catapult. Mm. Uh and the person's like, I've only ever read the manual. I've never done this before. And Amro's like, that's just how it works here. <laughs> and I think this strongly echoed that idea. Like, here's a yeah. manual, but you're just going to have to do it. Yep. You're just going to have to try because that's the situation we're in. There's no time to be ready. There's no time to learn. Shall we talk about Matilda 
and McVeigh. McVeigh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the Federation and Xeon commands, really. Sure. So the thing that occurred to me with McVeigh is you made the point of the tension between the show as a way to <laughs> sell toys versus this tragic anti-war story that the writers perhaps want to tell. And McVeigh seems so cartoonishly villainous in these two episodes that it feels more on the selling toys side. Yeah, we get these scenes of him in his command center with his lackeys. <laughs> and there's like this evil uplighting. The camera's positioned a little bit down. And we just see him. His mouth is barely moving. And he's going, yes, now they have fallen into my trap. Yes. He's got the low, yes. monotone, mumbly, evil voice. Now we will destroy the white base once and for all. <laughs> well, and explaining the whole trap that they've laid. Uh, they don't even realize where we let them keep their radar. They're going right into our trap. Yes. <laughs> uh, which he's always been a little on that cartoonishly villainous side, mm-hmm. but so much more <laughs> in these two episodes yeah. than even the scenes with the ceramics. And that that cartoony, over-the-top, ridiculous feeling really comes back to the fore when Matilda delivers the power-up mecha. Well, and really the whole the whole second episode from the point when the power-up mecha is introduced initially by General Revel. I mean, the name of it, it's they call it power-up mecha. And the whole idea of like this new accessory for the Gundam is so important. Right. And it's the whole focus of these episodes. We're going to send all of these Medea transports to get it to the white base. We have to protect it at any cost. Oh no, the Zeons are coming to destroy it. And then in the battle itself, Amuro is like, he's losing the fight with the goof and it's like, oh no, how will I win the day? I'm too weak. If only there was something that could help me. And then Hayato appears, look Amuro, I've brought the power up mecha. I also wondered Now that available at your local toy store for only 500 yen. I also, well, 500 yen in the 70s, I assume. <laughs> that's not very much money now. I found myself wondering that a little bit also with the mega particle cannon, mm. which for some reason Amaro knows what it's called. I don't think there's any reason that he would know that this particular piece of Xeon technology is called the mega particle cannon. Just felt like this being their first exposure, it was weird that he already knew what it was. Mm-hmm. But the way that he says the name makes it feel like a setup for yet another accessory that you can buy. This must be the mega particle cannon. Buy the Xeon base play set. (laughs) Probably. With real mega particle cannon action. Um, Shoots glow sticks. I don't know. We had sort of a funny moment with the double agent. What's his name? Mr. Judok. Judok. And McVeigh says Mr. in English. He really accentuates it. Mr. Judok. I have no idea what accent you're going for there. <laughs> I don't know what accent he was going for. Um, but there's this moment where uh, McVeigh says to Judok, careful, your Federation collar is showing. Now, I think it's clear this is meant to hint at the fact that Judok is a double agent. We then see him in the back background of the scene uh, with the Federation officers. Although that is the next episode. Yes. So it takes a while before that's confirmed. However, it's not animated in a way that there is actually another collar showing. Mm -hmm. So when we first 
first saw this episode before we got confirmation of the fact that <laughs> uh, Judok is a double agent, I thought maybe it was some kind of way for McVeigh to tell Judok he was being sloppy. Like, oh, the fact that your collar unbuttoned makes you sloppy like those Federation people. Uh, I thought there was, <laughs> I thought it was some sort of culture commentary moment. And I think, I think you're right. I think you're still right about that. Because if you look at the two different collars, the Federation collar is actually, it's very distinct. We would absolutely be able to tell if he had literally been wearing a Federation uniform under his Xeon one. I know you're going to say that you think it's just sloppy, lazy animation. <laughs> but bear with me a second. The way the Federation collar works is actually very interesting because it's a single layer of fabric right in front of the like windpipe. But then around the edges, around the back of the collar and the sides, it's at least two, I think three layers of fabric with gold piping around the edges. So there's like no way you could wear that under another collar. You couldn't wear a Federation uniform under a Xeon uniform. So I think this has to be McVeigh either saying, oh, you're being sloppy, which I think is what's going on because Judok does have his collar unbuttoned. And that's not something we see from Xeon officers ever. I think the scouts back in episode 14, <laughs> the guys at the like, forward base, I think some of them did it. Well, but they, were, of, they were in the jungle. and Yeah. No, no, nobody working from McVeigh ever does this. So I do think that is meant to be like, oh, you're sloppy like those Federation commoners. And I might also just be McVeigh messing with Judok a little bit. Mm, maybe. I still think lazy animating is the most likely <laughs> <laughs> reason for all this. But our, our but interpretation then, is certainly more interesting. Why call attention to it? You didn't have to put that line in. That's fair. I thought some of the changes to the animation in these episodes also felt like they ran counter to each other. On the one hand, I noticed a lot of sort of grittier, more detailed shading on many of the ships. However, we also noticed that in scenes where there are multiple dops, they're all exactly the same dop. It's They are identical. Yeah. They're just slightly different sizes to make it look like they're different distances <laughs> away. This is especially noticeable in the scene when the three goofs being carried on planes called Dodais, and then they have a fleet of dops accompanying them. And it's, it's just copy paste. It's the same goof three times. It's the same dop 20 times. And you can tell it's the same goof because all three of them have the little horn on the head and those horns on both Goofs and Zaku indicate that that is a commander unit so there would not have been three commander <laughs> units in the same uh, squadron. Yeah. Everyone's in command. <laughs> and that takes us to some technology which I do want to note here. Besides the power up mecha and I don't think we have seen the extent of the power up mecha because there's the G fighter. It's like a fighter plane with battleship cannons on its back and tank treads because just, just put everything in there. It's a chimera. But Matilda also references, I think she says something about like the G parts or G armor. And there's definitely some other fun Gundam accessories that are going to be introduced soon. You got to admit, it's been a while since they introduced some new toys. Obviously, if you already have your Gundam, they need you to now buy your G Gundam and your bonus armor and your <laughs> special new weapons. And <laughs> Yeah, I assume no one is buying the Kui <laughs> infantry tanks or the Samson flatbed trucks. So yeah, they had to introduce new stuff. I actually just the other day saw an old toy of the Dodai carrying a goof. So those were definitely made. We are going to see a lot of these planes that carry mobile suits going forward. It's going to be a recurring thing. And we actually saw it for the very first time back in episode 15, aka the lost episode, aka Kukuru's Doan's Island. Although in that case, it was a lagoon and it was carrying a Zaku, or to be more accurate, the Zaku was clinging to it by the wings. Well, it was hanging down underneath it. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, I think the the animators, the people composing the fight scenes, take a lot of liberties with the established abilities of the Gundam. Like one of the first things that comes up when Amuro has to use the Gundam in Earth atmosphere is, oh, you can't you can't float and you can't fly. You can jump. You have jets, but it's very different than jetting around in space. Uh, I feel like every combination scene totally ignores <laughs> this. Uh-huh. They they take their sweet time. Oh, yeah, sinking absolutely. up all of those bits as they are falling to the ground. Uh, but they have restrained themselves from ever actually showing the Gundam flying, which yes. is why the G Fighter now allows the Gundam to fly. Exactly. It at least from that perspective makes sense. And in both of the combats in this episode, we see a lot of dog fighting. We see a lot of fighter on fighter, and then G Fighter on Dodai with Goof. We see a lot of aerial combat here. We also see a Goof do a fighter plane technique, which is to come at your enemy from the sun so they can't see you so they're blinded trying to find you and then when you finally get close enough it's already too late for them to do anything yep which Amuro pulled on Shar and Godem back in episode 3 but Amuro was much more at home fighting in space none of these goof pilots are anywhere near as good as Rambaral nope though we do see the Gundam take significant damage that they actually animate in a persistent way this time I'm thinking of he gets caught in a heat rod attack that wraps around the middle of the Gundam and so there's a a line of melted metal all Mm -hmm. the way around the midsection Mm -hmm. of the Gundam. Now with realistic battle damage. (laughs) Well, I'm convinced that's part of this. Oh, the Gundam isn't strong enough on its own. We need the power-up mecha. Mm -hmm. You, child, need the power-up mecha. (laughs) Last episode, we noticed that when the episode of Gundam does not contain a transformation sequence, they'll use that gun parry transformation practice footage in the opening narration. But if an episode does contain a transformation sequence, then they won't and we'll get a normal opening narration. And that holds true in this episode. Both of these episodes contain transformation sequences and we did not get a repeat of the old gun parry footage, just adding to that feeling of tension between what the animators and the writers actually want to make versus what the toy company requires them to make. So I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly or not, but I was pretty sure in this second episode that Matilda's voice is much deeper than it was before. It is noticeably deep. Um, I don't remember. I don't remember noticing how deep her voice was in her previous appearances. I did look this up and there has not, in fact, been a voice actor change. It is the same voice actor. It may just be that she uh, changed up her performance a little bit. But in looking up the voice actor to confirm that it was the same woman, I was reminded of a fun little bit of trivia, which is that in a very small amount of time after the recording of these episodes, she is going to marry Shar's voice actor. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Neat. So I have no idea if this was an influence or not, but it's sort of hard to imagine it wasn't. Uh, some of you may be familiar with Takarazuka. Takarazuka is a series of theater companies that are entirely women. All of the actors are women. And there are women who specialize in playing male presenting 
roles. And Matilda's voice now sounds like one of those actors. And given how strong and often masculine seeming Matilda's character is, as you pointed out, it's always ridiculous when they do like the sexy pan of her because in the uniform and with her attitude, she might as well be bright. Maybe that was the idea behind doing the voice this way. Perhaps with the the short hair and while they don't make a lot out of women in the Federation Army, it's clear that it's not totally equal. We have yet to see any other women who are officers. They're clearly outnumbered by men who are officers. Mm -hmm. It's not a post-sexism world. Right. (laughs) They have to wear those stupid pink uniforms. Except for Matilda, she gets to wear gray. But yeah, I know uh, Osama Tezuka, who we've talked about before, is from the town of Takarazuka, (laughs) where Takarazuka Theater is based. So it wouldn't surprise me to learn that it had also influenced people who at various times worked with Osama Tezuka, including Tomino. Mm -hmm. It may seem weird for me to say that there's like a voice attached to playing these masculine roles in Takarazuka, but I I will look for an audio clip or something. It's very characteristic. It's part of the style. Mm -hmm. And it does feel like that's the kind of voice they're going for with Matilda here. Another tidbit about Matilda's voice actor that might play into that voice is that before she got into doing voice acting, she was briefly a not very successful Enka singer. Okay. Enka are ballads. So the style of the ending theme is a bit like (laughs) is a bit like an Enka ballad. Mm -hmm. We'll try to find some good audio of that as well. We mentioned at the beginning the sort of odd tonal shifts in these two episodes. There's the Xeon soldier who escapes his goof just barely. He has the good luck that the beam saber runs out of juice right as Amuro is about to stab it through his cockpit. Mm -hmm. So the cockpit only gets kind of crushed and then Amuro tears it open just enough that the Xeon soldier can scramble away. But the way that he's drawn escaping, he's like scooting down the leg of Sienazaku or a goof. He's in a goof. There is are no there, there are, are no Zakus in these two episodes. Um, but anyway, the way he's scooting down is very comical. The way he's drawn is just silly, mm-hmm. which felt out of place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think when he actually like hits the ground, there might even be a moment where his like eyeballs jump above his skull. The way <laughs> very Looney Tunes, exactly. So that's <laughs> that doesn't fit. There's also the bathing scene, right? So for those of you who aren't as familiar with Japanese culture, group bathing is very common. There are a lot of bathhouses in Japan. I've been to one. It's super nice. Small children like the orphans would probably be with women unless maybe like their dad brought them, but usually they would be bathing together. And if you go further back in history, bathhouses didn't even necessarily have separated sides by gender. Group bathing like all together was much more common for a long time. So the amount of nudity that we see in that scene, the like complete nudity of the children and the breasts exposed nudity of Frabo would not have been shocking or titillating at all to a Japanese audience. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a similar family group bathing scene, I think, in My Neighbor Totoro. Yeah, it's the dad common. with his two daughters. Uh, it would not have been thought of as weird. I want to check something, actually, because I am curious what percentage of households in the 1970s in Japan actually had their own baths, because it would not have been all that long before the show came out that most people would not have even been able 
able to bathe at home, you would have had to go to the bathhouse if you wanted to bathe. Mm -hmm. Again, because it's a silly scene with the kids fighting and crying and these little boys being like, well, you're both women. Why doesn't Kika have boobs yet? (laughs) And Kika getting upset about it. Uh, (laughs) It feels very silly. And then the subsequent like, ew, Hayato and Amuro, you stink. Go bathe. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, wow, teenage boys have been gross forever. We don't have time for showers. We're saving the world. Just give me some space axe. Future axe. So again, it felt kind of out of place in the episode as a whole. Because unlike the the scene with Kika and Mirai and Amuro previously, that felt like it was showing us how Amuro was fitting into and attaching to the crew. This doesn't really do that. This is Fra taking care of the orphans again, which Mm -hmm. we've seen many times and don't really need reestablished. We don't learn anything new about that relationship. So yeah, I don't really know why that's there except maybe to lighten the mood a little. Yeah, things have been pretty dark for a while now. So yeah, lighten the mood. Bring a little levity in with some orphan antics. Uh, I'm a little worried because it seems like there's some tension within the orphans. (laughs) Oh no. And I'm concerned that Frau Bo and the orphans might break up. That would be terrible. Or alternatively, write their best album ever. (laughs) And then break up. There is a hand gesture that pops up when the group of Xeon commandos first jet up to the white base to plant explosives. So when that scene first happened, I thought those commandos were actually going to try another boarding action on the white base, but apparently they heard how the last one of those went and decided not (laughs) to go that way. Mm -hmm. You see several of the men in succession after planting their bombs raise their arms up over their head in a circle. And this, in Japanese, instead of doing like a, a check mark on papers when something is correct, they draw a circle, maru. But they also still use the X for incorrect, and X is batsu. People will also demonstrate this with hand gestures, which is why you get these men raising their arms up overhead, which is basically a confirmation like, yes, I successfully planted the bomb. If one of them had run into a problem, he would have probably raised his arms overhead in an X, indicating like, oh, it didn't work or something's wrong. But that's what that hand gesture means. It means success. Mm-hmm. All good. Ooh, I want to know, after all of your studying of Japanese sword fighting techniques, (laughs) do you know the name for... Amuro does this very dramatic slash at one point that I'm pretty sure is a traditional sword fighting slash from the sort of like juncture of the neck and shoulder diagonally through the body. And I'm wondering what that's called. That is kesa giri, diagonal downward cut. Kesa is a kind of sash that is worn diagonally across the chest by Buddhists. Mm, And so to, to cut along the line of that sash, down the chest is Kesagiri. We learn in the first of these two episodes that the white base has destroyed two of Makave's bauxite mining bases. And we can learn a couple of interesting things from this. The first one is what is bauxite actually used for? Bauxite is the world's main source of aluminum. Yeah, which of course is very important for a war effort like Xeon's or any space age manufacturing. But the other thing about bauxite is that it is also the main source for the rare element gallium. And gallium is essential for advanced electronics, including microwave circuits, infrared circuits, LEDs, lasers. It's also used in semiconductors, very high quality mirrors, and in the manufacture of nuclear weapons. 
which of course they're not allowed to do and definitely are not making. Of course not. It's also used in wax for skis and in some <laughs> practical jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Both of which seem right up McVeigh's alley. <laughs> wow. Apparently there's a there's a classic chemistry practical joke because gallium has a very low melting point, but you can make a spoon out of it, which looks exactly like a silver spoon and it's non-toxic. So you serve tea to a fellow academic and you give them a spoon and then they when they go to stir their tea, the spoon just dissolves in their hands. <laughs> Funny chemistry joke. <laughs> Is that it for uh No. Uh, there's one <laughs> other thing. Beyond um, funny practical jokes with gallium spoons, this also helps us to narrow down the white base's current location because there aren't that many places where you can extract bauxite in the area around Odessa. There are basically two possibilities. Either the white base has already crossed the Caspian Sea and made a wrong turn around the Black Sea, ending up in southern Greece, <laughs> or they are just west of Lake Balkash in Kazakhstan, about 2,000 miles east of Odessa. That sounds like a long way away, but remember that back in episode 1.10, <laughs> we calculated how fast Garma's attack force would have had to travel to get from New York to Seattle, and that's 2,400 miles. And we determined it was entirely reasonable for them to make that journey in the course of one night, even with modern today technology, never mind future technology. Japanese bathing culture has its origins in Buddhist temples of India and spread through China and to Japan during the 700s CE. Initially, these were steam baths in temples and used only by priests. But by the mid-1200s, the first commercial bathhouses, or sento, were operating. Not to be confused with onsen, which use water from natural hot springs. The first sento were all mixed-sex facilities for hundreds of years. It wasn't until during the Tokugawa shogunate, from the early 1600s to the late 1800s, that the government first tried to require sex segregation in public baths for moral reasons. There were oftentimes bath attendants in the bath facilities who could fetch and carry things for you, help anyone who felt sick because of the heat, scrub your back, etc. Some of these female bath attendants would also, after hours, work as sex workers. There, there were also male bath attendants. The historical record does not seem to have evidence that many of the male bath attendants were working as sex workers, but I'm sure it's, enti it's entirely plausible. Many bathhouses dealt with these new rules by putting up a small partition in the middle of the bathhouse, one that people could easily still look over, uh, or by having separate hours for uh, men and women who wanted to come bathe. But these laws really didn't last long, and they were soon relaxed. Sex segregation in the bathhouses didn't stick until the 1890s during the Meiji period after the whole Commodore Perry incident and Japan's increased exposure to European culture. Uh, the Meiji period was a time when Japan's government was looking to westernize in a lot of ways. And so there were some laws and cultural shifts made to push the Japanese people to behave in ways that were more acceptable to the West which obviously Europeans would have been scandalized <laughs> by <laughs> mixed sex bathing. Although, you know, that you said that happened in around the 1890s. 90s, yes. In the US, there was not a general acceptance that bathing was necessary until around the 1880s. <laughs> Uh, of relevance to the bathing scene in this episode, even once 
They imposed sex segregation in bathing facilities. Young children were allowed on either side of the bathhouse. At the time, the age cutoff was eight. Now it's strongly variable depending on where you are. In different cities, there are different conventions. In some places, the age cutoff is as young as five. In other places, the age cutoff is as old as 12. But there is a, a general feeling that if you're a young child, you can go on either side of the bath and it's not a problem, you know, in the company of whatever adult it is who's bringing you. The real heyday for bathhouses was actually the post-war period from the 50s through the early 1970s. Because of how many homes and facilities had been destroyed and because of the post-war building boom, there was an interest in making as much housing as quickly as possible, which meant that individual units were not necessarily equipped with the like most modern and up-to-date plumbing facilities. It made more sense to build communal bathing facilities than to include them in each home. And many Japanese residential buildings built at this time, especially public housing at either the national or city level, just didn't have showers or baths at all. Yeah, that was really not common until the construction that was happening in the late 70s and early 80s. And that it was that later construction boom that included more and more bathing facilities in private homes. But the first post-war construction boom did not have that. Bathhouses were popular for a whole slew of reasons. Uh, in the earliest days, most people would not have been able to take a warm bath. It just like, would not have been a thing that was available to you if you were a common person. But a public bathing facility where you pay a small fee and the water is being heated for use by many, many people rather than just <laughs> one household worth was much more cost effective and sort of opened up bathing to more types of people. In the Edo period, baths in private homes were actually forbidden due to the fire hazard. And as we mentioned, plumbed in hot water and even plumbing period was rare in private homes until much later than we might think based on its ubiquity now. Even in the United States, I found a statistic that in 1940, almost half of homes did not have what we would consider complete plumbing. They were missing either hot water, a bath or shower or a flush toilet or some combination of those three. Well, as late as 1954, the American plumbing industry was confidently projecting that the day was not far off when a bathroom with a bathtub and a shower would be necessary in every home. 1954. Uh, I'm a big fan of another show called Call the Midwife, which takes place in the 50s and 60s in London. And one of the things that comes up over and over again, because the, the show takes place in a sort of poorer neighborhood, a lot of people are in public housing and, you know, the water for your bath is heated in a kettle on the stove. The toilet is down the hall and shared by everyone on your floor. Like <laughs> the whole idea of plumbed facilities for private homes and individual apartment units is much more recent <laughs> than we might think. In Europe, a lot of that is because of the residential buildings that were destroyed during the war. And so when they were being rebuilt, they were built according to more modern standards. And you might then have a shower installed in your home or in your unit. But people were not accustomed to that. And so this is anecdotal, but I've heard stories from the Netherlands of people who would just use their showers as coal storage. Finally, yet another reason for bathhouses popularity in Japan is the communal aspect. It was a place where you hung out with your neighbors and gossiped and you know, met with people who lived near you and around you. This was something that I had a sense of previously, but was very gratified to find a resource to back me up. Uh, <laughs> nudity in Japanese media is not always meant to suggest something sexual or erotic. 
It's used very differently than nudity in U.S. media. It is frequently used for non-sexual humor, which we do see in this scene. Um, we can argue about whether one of the boys being confused as to why Kika doesn't have breasts is sexual or not. I would say it's not. He's just observing mm-hmm. like, oh, bodies are different. Isn't that funny? Right. And Kika's like, Kika's not upset because she doesn't have breasts. She's upset because she feels like the boys are picking on her. <laughs> But even more significantly, nudity in Japanese media is sometimes used to create sentimental feelings, especially feelings about family and motherhood. Like, given what we've said about the prevalence of bathhouses, bathhouse culture, Frabo with the orphans in the bath is the like er motherhood thing. We've seen her look after them for a long time. But this is one of the most explicitly mom things we have ever seen her do. It might be the most mom thing we have ever seen her do. And for most of the people watching the show at this time, this would have been a familiar experience. They would have gone to a bathhouse with their mother. When I think about the scene in this context, it changes from being silly and out of place to being another reminder of how the white base has become the family for much of its crew and especially for the three orphans. And this is an episode where the white base itself is in peril. This is their home and it's being threatened. Their home, their community, their family. When showers were first becoming widespread, there was a perceived health benefit from being splashed with powerful streams of pressurized water. But many thought that it was too powerful for the elderly women and children. That's in the West or in Japan? In the West. Okay. Taking showers was too stressful. (laughs) Only grown men could handle them. (laughs) If you ever go to Japan, I highly recommend you go to a sento. It's really nice. I liked it. I can't remember if I made Tom go to one. I don't think we had a chance to. No, we didn't. It would have been nice. I probably would have been pretty uncomfortable with it at that (laughs) point, but I would totally be down for it now. I mentioned the conspicuous absence of Kai in the first episode, an absence that the show even feels the need to comment on by having Hayato mention something about, why isn't Kai here? And then we get a cut to Kai going, Ugh. Ah, Yeah, while well, he shoots one of the guns. What is probably just like stock audio or could have even been somebody else doing their best Kai impression. So this made me think that Kai's voice actor must have been unavailable this week. I looked into it and I think I was right about that. So Kai's voice actor is Furukawa Toshio, who is great. Besides playing Kai. He also played Piccolo in Dragon Ball Z, among other roles. He collects gun cannon models and Piccolo figures. He names his dogs after characters he's played. And he's in a band with the voice actors for Amuro, Bright, and Commander Joaquin. Anyway, episode 22, The Trap of McVeigh, aired on September 1st, 1979. At that point, Furukawa was working on two other anime. The mecha adventure Mirai Robo Daltanius, where he played the main character, and then also Entaku no Kishi Monogatari Moeru Asa, or in English, Story of the Knights of the Round Table, Blazing Arthur, <laughs> where he played Sir Pelinor. Presumably, his schedule was absolutely packed at this point, and Gundam got him when they could get him. An interesting side note, Han Keiko, the voice actor who played Iselina Eschenbach and is going to come back for an important role later in the series, played the female leads in both Mirai Robo Daltanius and Blazing Arthur. (laughs) 
there's a moment with the commandos who are going to plant explosives on the white base where one of them makes a, a big deal out of his all plastic watch. And this felt strange to me <laughs> that they would, <laughs> they would have not just a line about it, but they sort of leave a lot of space around that line yep. and, and make a big thing of it. I was wondering if there was a Gundam branded plastic watch available for sale. <laughs> not to my knowledge, but the first ever watch with a plastic movement which is also called the works of a watch. It's the gear mechanism in mechanical watches. Was the Idea 2001 by Tissot, released in 1971. Hmm. In addition to being almost entirely plastic, there is a synthetic ruby for the impulse pin and the metal mainspring barrel and winding mechanism. But the movement is simpler, only 52 pieces compared to the at-the-time standard of 92 pieces for Swiss watches. This watch was made to be inexpensive, almost disposable. The idea was if it stopped working, you wouldn't bother to get it fixed. You would just trash it and buy a new one. That was part of the marketing campaign for it, right? Yes, it was. Uh, so why didn't they catch on? Because at the time, mechanical watches were fast becoming considered obsolete. The Swiss watchmaking industry spent most of the 70s in what one source describes as a tailspin, mainly due to the revolutionary new quartz watch technology and competition from Japan. Hmm. Seiko, the Japanese watchmaker, released the first ever commercially available quartz watch, the 35SQ Astron, in 1969. It was the world's most accurate wrist watch at the time. So this line feels a little bit like them taking a dig at the Swiss watchmaking industry. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, your silly innovation that nobody cares about is this all plastic watch. <laughs> I had also wondered if it was a reference to Swatch, but Swatch really didn't become a thing until the early 80s. Swatch would have been after this show. For those of you who don't remember Swatches, they were also uh, thin, inexpensive, typically plastic casing watches in bright colors. They were made to be more like an inexpensive fashion accessory than a prestige timepiece. So yeah, maybe they just felt like taking a dig at Switzerland. I don't know. <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up because we didn't get a chance to talk about it. But there's that great moment in that scene, probably my favorite moment in either of these two episodes, where one of the commandos starts sweating underneath his helmet mm -hmm. and he goes to wipe the sweat off his face and he just smacks his hand into his helmet face shield. I loved that. And he kind of makes a face like, oh, duh. duh. <laughs> It's another one of those great moments we get sometimes in this show where they really have thought about what it would actually be like to live in this world with this technology, to actually wear that helmet. I think the uh, the attention to those details and the focus on certain physical sensations and bringing to life physical sensations and physical realities is part of what makes the show so impactful when when it is, when it's impactful and when we're mm -hmm. feeling those emotions. A lot of it is because we've been made to think about what it would physically feel like to be there. Yeah. The sweat, the lights, the fear, the whatever it is. Right. Those bugs. Yeah. I thought of the bugs too. And the heat. Mm -hmm. like the minute you see the bugs in the jungle, you think heat. Um, well, and when Bright gets off of his shift and he immediately unbuttons his collar, and you just, we've all worn uncomfortable shirts for too long. Yeah. The future is not different. It's just future. <laughs> At the end of The Trap of McVeigh, Mirai orders that the white base's smoke bombs be detonated in their launch tubes in order to deceive the Xeon attackers into believing that the white base is more badly damaged than it actually is. 
Xeon is fooled, and the white base manages to escape total destruction by the narrowest margin. So this raised two questions for me. One, why would Xeon back off an opportunity to confirm once and for all that the dreaded Trojan horse and its Gundam have been destroyed? And also, what is the history of smoke bombs? <laughs> smoke bomb! So it should come as no surprise that tactical smoke screens have been used in battle for centuries. It's impossible to say when this started, but we do know that the Dutch used one as early as 1622 when they created a smoke screen by firing a barrel of damp gunpowder into the wind. <laughs> smoke screens were used by Confederate ships in the U.S. Civil War to provide cover while they were running the Union blockade, and were used most extensively, and this is going to shock you, during World Wars I and II, by naval ships covering their retreat while under fire. Now, classically, naval ships have a simple way to make large clouds of obscuring black smoke. You just inject fuel oil directly into the smokestacks. And back when they were coal-powered, you would just manipulate the coal burner in order to cause the coal to combust incompletely, which would have the same effect. However, large clouds of black smoke absorb heat from the sun very quickly and then rise above the water, revealing the ships that they are supposed to be obscuring. And of course, as radar, infrared sensors, and laser designators developed, the tactical value of mere smoke declined. So this led to the development of high-tech designer smoke with specially <laughs> tailored particles. Things like burning phosphorus, aluminum-coated glass, titanium dioxide, brass, graphite, and plenty of other nasty materials are all used to produce what I'm just going to call future smoke. <laughs> So why did Xeon back off? This is just a theory, but since the white base sent off their armament of smoke bombs instead of just making smoke the old-fashioned way, the smoke that obscured their ship would have been future smoke. And let's just assume that it was sufficient to block all the meaningful Xeon sensors. Infrared, visual, all that sort of thing. All the Xeon pilots know is that the white base has been hit by the mega particle cannon, it has crashed, and that secondary explosions have started going off on the white base. The last time we saw a ship crash like this was back in episode 11 when two GAO carriers crashed and then exploded like nuclear bombs. So with no data to the contrary, those Xeon pilots were probably worried that the white base's reactor was about to blow and destroy anything anywhere nearby, including any Xeon forces foolish enough to be in the blast radius trying to confirm the kill. Now, Garma and Rambaral might have inspired suicidal devotion in their troops, but McVeigh does not seem like that sort of commander. So I'm guessing the DOT pilots just said, yeah boss, they're definitely dead, and went home. <laughs> Oh, and in case you're wondering, how much damage could setting off smoke bombs inside the launch tubes actually cause the white base? Well, the Japanese used a smoke bomb during World War II called the Type 150 kilogram smoke bomb. And let's just assume that the smoke bombs on the white base are at least as powerful as the Type 100. So the Type 100 had 51 pounds of chemical filling in order to make all of the smoke, but it was also packed with six pounds of high explosives, presumably to distribute the smoke. That's the same payload as an anti-tank mine. So a lot of damage. It's a very brief portion of the episode, but they do make the point that the explosives used on the white base to disable some of its sensors are plastic explosives. So we looked up a little information about plastic explosives. Some of you may already know this, but the very first plastic explosive was invented by Alfred Nobel in 1875. He I have heard that name before. Nobel Prize fame. Plastic explosives are particularly well suited for demolitions and used quite a lot by engineers, including combat engineers, because you can shape the charge into whatever shape is best suited to what you're trying to demolish. So for sabotage, if you're trying to destroy just the Minovsky particle emitters and electronic countermeasures, 
Yes, you could theoretically shape the charge so that it would punch through the outer shielding and just damage a specific area rather than a more widespread destruction. Right. In order to leave their radar intact. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, For some nefarious purpose. Plastic explosives were used to destroy concrete fortifications during D-Day, for instance. It was used to sabotage German installations and railways in occupied Europe. It was also used in some anti-tank shells, but because its most ideal use involves careful shaping and placement, it's more of a sabotage kind of explosive than a grenade or a mortar where you fire it off and hope for the best. (laughs) Also, apparently, one simple and commonly used during World War II plastic explosive, Nobel's 808, often called Explosive 808 in the British Armed Forces, looks like green plasticine and smells like almonds. Delicious. (laughs) Learn something new every day. This one takes us back a bit to episodes 1.16, covering Sailor's Agony, and 1.17, covering Amuro Desserts, and to the Zeon Zaku pilot, Kozun Graham. You might remember that Kozun is the first Zeon soldier to be captured by the White Base, and that this was also the first time they were able to capture an intact Zaku. Amuro was then able to use that captured Zaku to gather technical information and create simulations that helped him defeat Rambaral's goof. But Kozun was killed during his attempted escape from captivity aboard the White Base. At the time, I shared with you the story of the Akatan Zero, a Japanese fighter that crash-landed in the Aleutian Islands and was then studied by US forces to figure out how to beat the Zero. But there is another story about another crashed Zero and its pilot that might have partly inspired Kozen Graham's fate. So now, we travel to Darwin in Northern Australia, February 1942, two months after the outbreak of the Pacific War. Darwin was a small town before the war, with a population smaller than 6,000. By February 1942, all but 2,000 had been evacuated, and the town has become a major shipping hub for supplies, bound for the Allied forces defending Southeast Asia. But now it is the morning of February 19th. Thailand has allied with the Japanese. Hong Kong has fallen. Singapore has fallen. Timor has fallen. Manila has fallen. New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, Burma, the Philippines are falling. Darwin's harbor is full of allied ships, but they are poorly defended. Only a handful of inexperienced anti-aircraft gun crews who have not been able to train because there is not enough ammunition, a squadron flying trainer planes pressed into service as fighters, and a squadron of rookie U.S. pilots flying P-40 Warhawks. Only here because they are transferring through Darwin on their way to the impending Battle of Java. And then the Japanese came to Darwin. The first carrier air fleet, the same force that had attacked Pearl Harbor months ago, launched 188 attack planes, 36 Zero fighters, and 152 bombers to raid Darwin. Commanding them was Fuchida Mitsuo, the same man who had commanded the first wave at Pearl Harbor. Coast watchers spotted the incoming force, but the Allied command mistakenly assumed that the, quote, large force of aircraft reported by the lookouts was actually a friendly flight of 10 P-40s returning to base due to bad weather. So at 9.58 a.m., 23 minutes after being spotted and two minutes before the air raid sirens started, the first wave hit. For about 30 minutes, they bombed and strafed, sinking three warships and six merchant ships, badly damaging 10 more. They also destroyed two airfields and damaged the town's oil stores and barracks. All of that before the second wave of bombers arrived. The Japanese lost four aircraft during the attack. 
only two Japanese soldiers were killed and one was captured. And that introduces Sergeant Toyoshima Hajime, pilot of a Zero fighter shot down during the raid. He crashed on nearby Melville Island, but survived unharmed and so tried to escape. He was captured, however, by an indigenous Australian man named Matthias Ulungura, a member of the Tiwi tribe. In Ulungura's own words, I walked after him and grabbed his wrist, near gun. He got proper big fright. I take revolver from his right side, near his knee. Then I walk backwards, pointing gun. I say, stick him up, two hands. <laughs> Realizing the importance of the crashed Zero to military intelligence, Toyoshima, who at this point has the ignominious distinction of being the first Japanese prisoner of war taken in Australian territory, gave a fake name and claimed that he had just washed ashore. He was transferred to a prisoner of war camp. And here is where the Gundam parallel becomes really strong, because Toyoshima became one of the masterminds of a mass breakout of prisoners of war. And just like Kozun's attempted escape from the white base, this breakout is going to begin promisingly, but end with 235 escapees dead, the rest hunted down and recaptured. And Toyoshima, just like Kozen, is not going to survive the escape that he started. We haven't seen Char in episodes. Where is Char? Where is Char and what is he doing? Who is he doing? <laughs> Next time on episode 1.22, because of people like you, Amuro gets cheeky. Remember Polaroids? someone elegant. Advanced teamwork. A working mother with three kids. Who is narrating this thing? A G-fighter, G-armor, G-whatever. And Odessa Day. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Sailor would have made a better acting acting captain on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Life is meaningless <laughs> without ice cream. Any Invader Zim fans? But I don't think he gets mentioned in the second one at all. He does at least once, because I have a note about it. Okay. Do you remember who and when? No. <laughs> we would have to check. <laughs> what does your note say? It just says, mention Ryu again. Talking about bauxite.
there you go. It's cold in New York today. For weird <laughs> Shinto reasons, male-female sex is considered more... Um, polluting? Yeah, more polluting. quite ready oh, okay. um, no I don't like I don't know what's wrong don't don't look at me <laughs> uh.